When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 63. The Putney Debates. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, we have new additions to the Patreon House of Lords. The Marquis of Clarence, Rory Martin, Christopher, Earl of Hammond, Thomas, Viscount Collins, and Baron Chi, Christian Pedron. Like all other patrons, they receive a premium ad-free RSS feed. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Last time, we saw how the war in Ireland was becoming increasingly complex. The Irish Confederates were pulling apart at the seams between those willing to come to terms with the government, whether it be parliamentarian or royalist, and those who saw continued war until the Confederacy controlled the whole island as the best path forward. On the other side of the lines, the parliamentarians in Munster were as divided as ever. The independent Presbyterian contest in Westminster continued to influence who held power in the province, Lord Inchiquin or Lord Broghill. Both were meant to be on the same side, but you couldn't really tell. We saw how, by the end of 1647, Parliament had enjoyed a year of incredible successes against the Confederacy, who had likewise suffered enormous losses in the battles and slaughters of summer and autumn. In England, things are about to get very radical indeed. When we last saw the new model army, Fairfax and Cromwell had led it triumphantly through the city of London. Their enemies in Parliament had been ousted, and a more sympathetic city leadership had been installed. However, not all of their issues had been solved by this show of force. The army had still not received its promised pay, with London in particular being behind in paying their share of the assessment. Recruits to fill vacancies in the army flowed in from the capital, and many of them brought radical ideas with them. Many so-called army levellers appeared in the ranks during this period, drawn to the opportunity presented by the influence the army clearly wielded. New agitators, the representatives of each regiment which came out of the politicisation of the army, appeared from these newcomers, 
and they often appeared to be self-appointed. In early September, Fairfax moved his headquarters to the village of Putney. In our time, Putney is well within the bounds of Greater London, but in 1647 it was a quiet, riverside community about six miles away from Westminster. Now it played host to the officers of the New Model Army, and their parish church of St Mary's, which is still there, became, as Jonathan Healy puts it in his Blazing World, the driving saddle of the nation. Because this was where the General Council of the Army met to discuss the heads of proposals, and the future negotiations with the king. The fallout from Charles's rejection of the heads was still to be dealt with. Radical MPs Thomas Rainsborough and Henry Martin proposed a vote of no addresses to Parliament. This would effectively end negotiations with the king, who had made his insincerity clear to all, or so they argued. For now, this motion was easily defeated with the backing of Cromwell and Henry Ireton, who still hoped to find a negotiated settlement with the king. With the army clearly sticking to the heads of proposals as a basis for negotiation, its opponents in Parliament tried to get one over them by sending Charles a slightly amended version of the Newcastle Propositions. Just like the original, Charles hated it, was having none of it, and so that went nowhere. But every day that the army grandees, the leading men of the army, your Fairfaxes, Cromwells and Iretons, every day that passed without them coming to an agreement with the king, their army was radicalising under their noses. With the army camped so close to London, still missing substantial parts of their pay, and growing increasingly resentful, radical ideas looked more and more appealing. The levellers, who already had a presence in the army, increased their influence. Like I mentioned earlier, new recruits flowed from the capital, fresh from the melting pot of ideas that was the streets of London, and new agitators appeared, more radically inclined than those who came before. One of the most influential levellers was the famous John Lilburn, who had been imprisoned in the Tower of London since 1646 for denouncing the Earl of Essex, and who hadn't let his incarceration get in the way of his work. He'd been making trouble for whoever was in power ever since, personally penning dozens of pamphlets and inspiring dozens more. When he'd previously been arrested under the personal rule, Cromwell had been one of the MPs in the Long Parliament who had fought to have him released. But now, when Cromwell arrived at the Tower to speak with his old ally, and try and get him to wind down his rhetoric while the settlement was negotiated, suggesting that his freedom would surely be agreed by Parliament if he stopped being such an incendiary, Lilburn turned him away. Worse, Cromwell's visit and his attempt to bribe Lilburn with his freedom backfired. Instead, Lilburn wrote an open letter, again smuggled out, which condemned the army grandees and accused them of, effectively, betraying the revolution. Lilburn warned the rank and file of the army, and the people at large, that they could not trust the grandees, quote, further than you can throw an ox, end quote. The political dispute escalated on the 18th of October, when two of the newer, more radical agitators gained an audience with Fairfax, where they presented him with a manifesto the case of the army truly stated. The case warned that, quote, the great mansion house of this commonwealth is on fire. It condemned the grandees for failing to resolve the army's demands over pay and for allowing the army to become unpopular among the general public. The leveller influence comes across clearly. The case called for the dissolution of the current parliament 
A general election open to all freeborn men over the age of 21, except royalists, liberty of conscience, and serious reform to the law and to the kingdom's economics, with all the kingdom's excise taxes and monopolies to be abolished. The root of their claim was that, quote, all power is originally and essentially in the whole body of the people of this nation, end quote. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony, as a wise man called Dennis once said. Fairfax, well aware that a lot of these points were not only justified, but also very popular among his troops, agreed that the case of the army would be discussed by the General Council on the 21st. In the meantime, the authors of the case had it printed and sold cheaply throughout London. When the General Council met, they referred the case to a committee of officers and agitators, which would surely dismiss the claims made against the grandees. It did not. Instead, the authors were invited to attend the next meeting of the General Council on the 28th, to explain themselves. It wasn't a condemnation, but neither did the committee accept all the points. Now, it would be a debate. The day before the council was to meet, the agitator Robert Everard arrived at army headquarters to deliver another document. This was the Agreement of the People, a much shorter and more readable pamphlet than the doorstop that had been the case of the army. Just a few pages long, it made its points clearly and concisely, but it was no less revolutionary for that. A written constitution should be drafted and signed by all freeborn Englishmen, which would stand above any act of Parliament. Parliament itself, by which it meant the House of Commons, was the supreme authority of the land, and should elect its MPs with constituencies based on the number of people present within them. Yet even Parliament would not be able to infringe upon certain inalienable rights. Protection from conscription, the right to religious freedom, the right to equality before the law, and a general pardon for any acts committed or said during the previous civil war. As Healy puts it, quote, It was a document of quite fundamental radicalism, based on the premise that the defeat of the king and the Norman yoke he represented had left the people a blank slate on which to scrawl their own, new, rational and equitable laws. Even the document's name conveyed its democratic character. It was an agreement of the people, and its approval by the whole population, the authors hoped, would form the basis of a new English democracy. The next day, on the 28th of October, the Putney debates began. Notably, Fairfax was once again absent from the great political events of the day. Pleading illness, it's likely that he really wasn't well, but it's another sign of his withdrawal from political affairs. Fairfax simply wasn't the political powerhouse that many of his subordinates were. He'd been chosen to lead the New Model Army in the first place because he was seen as politically neutral. The Putney debates are a who's who of the New Model Army's political idealists. Cromwell took the chair, supported by his son-in-law and political theorist, General Henry Ireton. Pitched against them were some of the most fervent radicals in the army. Thomas Rainsborough, who had been blocked from an appointment to a vice-admiralty because, justifiably, it would interfere with his responsibilities to the army. Cromwell had argued against his appointment, Fairfax had listened, and the commission had gone to someone else. This, surely, added a personal edge to his arguments. 
Then we have Edward Sexby, another radical officer, as well as two civilian levelers in attendance, along with two of the new agitators. With the meeting called to order, Sexby opened up, quote, The cause of our misery is upon two things. We sought to satisfy all men, and it was well, but in going to do it we have dissatisfied all men, end quote. Trying to please the king was a fool's errand. He had no love for the army, and would turn against them the minute he was able. Whereas Parliament was a, quote, company of rotten members, end quote. Sexby warned Cromwell and Ireton that by trying to appease both, their reputations had been, quote, much blasted. After Sexby spoke, the agreement of the people was read, and Cromwell was not sold. It was very ambitious. He questioned how it would be implemented. He wasn't convinced that the people it claimed to represent wanted it, and besides, it went against the promises the army had made earlier in the year to work with Parliament and the King to bring about a settlement. Rainsborough mocked Cromwell for worrying about how difficult it might be to implement. They just won a civil war. How difficult is too difficult when it came to winning a peace? The debate carried on, and the first day came to a close with the appointment of a committee to consider how the agreement of the people could be matched to previous public promises from the army. The next day, when the committee met, Cromwell attempted to have it discuss how the agreement would work with the army's public engagements, and like any good seminar tutor, he'd brought a handout of 164 pages of army declarations. His plan was for everyone to gather round and go through it together and hash it out, only for the lesson plan to go right out the window. Rainsborough insisted that the merits of the agreement should be discussed now, right now. Why waste time comparing the two documents if the council didn't agree that, quote, it were a paper that did hold forth justice and righteousness, end quote. This clever bit of manoeuvring worked, and so the room started going through the agreement point by point. The first called for the redistribution of parliamentary constituencies based on population. Now, on the face of it, this was just calling for the redrawing of constituencies to take into account the growing population, and to modernise the distribution of MPs to better represent this. Less populated regions might have greater representation than more populated regions, based on medieval practice or simply outdated boundaries. People had moved around, or populations had grown or shrunk. And one of the main differences between the case of the army and the agreement of the people was that where the case explicitly called for universal manhood suffrage, the agreement didn't. It just called for redrawing electoral boundaries to better match the changing population, not necessarily saying that more of that population should get a vote. Now, the authors might have meant it to mean that, but the text itself doesn't make that explicit. But speakers on both sides seem to have ignored this difference and spoke as if it did. So Ayrton spoke up and said that this point clearly implied universal manhood suffrage, which was obviously insane. In response, Rainsborough, who wasn't one of the authors of the Agreement of the People, it has to be said, chose to push back and said that it absolutely meant universal manhood suffrage and it was justified. And then we get one of the best and most famous quotes of the entire English Revolution, or even of all the wars of the Three Kingdoms. Quote, I think that the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he. 
And therefore, truly, sir, I think it's clear that every man that is to live under a government ought first by his own consent to put himself under that government. End quote. This quote has become part of the canon of constitutional history. It's even inscribed in St. Mary's Church in Putney, although, to be accurate, Rainsborough wasn't actually in the church when he said this, because the committee was meeting in a nearby house, but still, pedantry aside, it's a great quote. Unfortunately for Rainsborough, Ireton had a counter ready, one based on centuries of established political thought. Quote, For my part, I think it is no right at all. I think that no person hath a right to an interest or share in the disposing or determining of the affairs of the kingdom, and in choosing those that shall determine what laws we shall be ruled by here, no person hath a right to this, that hath not a permanent fixed interest in this kingdom. End quote. Universal manhood suffrage versus suffrage based on tax bracket. Rainsborough countered back, quote, I do not find anything in the law of God that a lord shall choose twenty burgesses, and a gentleman but two, or a poor man shall choose none. End quote. Rainsborough asked if the war had been fought to quote, enslave the people of England that they should be bound by laws in which they have no voice at all. End quote. Sexby stated that if the soldiers at least didn't get a vote from all this, then they quote, were mere mercenary soldiers. End quote. Sexby complained that, according to Ireton, unless, quote, a man hath a fixed estate in this kingdom, he hath no right in this kingdom. I wonder we were so much deceived. He went on, saying that achieving political reform, quote, was the ground that we took up arms, and it is the ground which we shall maintain, end quote. Another leveller, John Wildman, said that, quote, it was the undeniable maxim of government that all government is in the free consent of the people. Rainsborough and the other levellers were fighting against the accepted wisdom of a hundred centuries. And they were winning. Compromise was in the air. The premise of a wider franchise seemed to have been accepted. So now the argument was over the extent of that widening. Were foreigners to be given a vote? Maybe. What about servants, apprentices, the so-called idle poor? Soon even Cromwell was open to compromise. By the end of the second day of the debates, a consensus had been reached. All men would get the vote, including all soldiers, but excepting servants and arms-takers, the very poor. This was a serious redistribution of political power, even though, as Healy quips, quote, after all this, the very poorest he was to be excluded, end quote. The next day was a Sunday, so of course the debates were paused. When they reopened on Monday, it became clear that events were spiralling out of control. Because while the grandees and the radical agitators were debating the finer points of a future constitutional monarchy, the rank and file were coming to their own conclusions. The 17th century was an age of colourful characters and high drama. From the gunpowder plot to the killing of a king, 
from Cromwell and the civil wars to the restoration and the glorious revolution. And the world was changing too, from Europe to the new world and beyond. 1666 and all that is the podcast devoted to all things 17th century. Featuring guest interviews with leading historians and acclaimed authors. She's Miranda Malins. And he's Paul Lay. And together we bring the 17th century to life in 1666 and all that. You can find 1666 and all that wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit our website at podpage.com forward slash 1666 hyphen and hyphen all hyphen that. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. After the hiatus of Sunday the General Council of the Army reconvened in Putney on Monday to find that attitudes had hardened. The king himself came under fire. He was the man of blood, said the unfortunately named Captain Bishop, and no settlement could be secure with him on the throne. The possible solutions to that problem were limited, and Cromwell and Ireton were not yet convinced that they or the army had any legitimate means to remove him. There was more squabbling over fine points of constitutional theory, but outside, in the tents and around the fires of the garrisoned army, a revolution was brewing. Because, to the grandees' annoyance, the army levellers were very productive. Rainsborough took the time to visit John Lilburn in the tower, presumably to discuss the next steps. John Wildman, who was also busy with these debates, had found the time to write, publish and distribute another pamphlet. This new pamphlet was titled The Putney Projects, or The Old Serpent in a New Form, presenting to the view of all the well-affected in England the serpentine deceit of their pretended friends in the army, endeavouring to introduce tyranny and slavery in a new method. So, uh, no points for guessing what this text's position was. Also, Wildman published this under a pseudonym, John Lawmind, Lawmind is an anagram of Wildman. I don't know why, but that really tickles me. Anyway, the Putney projects were shared widely throughout the army, apparently during the Saturday debates and throughout the Sunday break. New agitators appeared throughout the ranks. Discipline was starting to break down, 
and some regiments were openly mutinous. All the while, army levelers were gathering signatures from the soldiers to support the agreement of the people, and fanning the growing resentment. If Cromwell, Ireton, and the other grandees refused to listen to reason in Putney, they would find themselves deprived of their soldiers. Annoyingly, our sources dry up after this third day of the debates. The team of secretaries appear to have stopped recording minutes. But we do know that while compromise was slowly being agreed on by the General Council, events outside the Council continued to deteriorate. Fearing that the leveller mutiny was on the brink of destroying the discipline of the army, Cromwell, Ireton and Fairfax, who appears to have been up and about by this point, agreed to bring the debates to a close on the 8th of November. A motion was passed by the Council to temporarily suspend itself, with all officers and agitators returning to their regiments. A new committee, consisting solely of officers this time, would meet to consider a future settlement. Whatever recommendations this new committee came to would be presented to the whole army for their agreement. The army rendezvous was planned by the grandees for both political and practical reasons. Instead of everyone meeting at the same place all at once, it was to be staggered into three places over four days. The grandees' reasoning was that this was because the army was scattered across the kingdom, and having separate musters made more practical sense. But this would also have the benefit of preventing radical agitators from mounting an effective mutiny, and those radical agitators certainly believed that this was the primary reason. Further evidence to support this can be seen in the fact that several regiments, notorious for their radical political culture, were not invited to the muster. The order was given on the 9th of November, the day after the Putney debates came to a close. The grandees had to act quickly to restore control over events. They were not helped by the news of two high-profile escapes. The first wasn't really an escape. In fact, he'd been granted bail, but either way meant the same thing. John Lilburn, the closest thing the levellers had to a leader, was out of the Tower of London. He'd declined previous offers of bail or pardon, only to now accept and reclaim his freedom of action. Fairfax and the other grandees, Cromwell included, must have received the news with dread. Was their army about to turn on them? Pamphlets flooded the ranks of the mustering soldiers, urging them to disregard Fairfax's command to gather in separate rendezvous, and instead to meet all together at the first ordered muster at Corkbrush Field in Hertfordshire on the 15th of November. Regiments arrived as ordered by Fairfax, and found civilian levellers ready and waiting, with new copies of the Agreement of the People. And who else but John Lilburn preparing to give a rousing speech to the ordinary men of the army? Fairfax arrived soon after the first regiments, and set about trying to calm passions and maintain discipline. He brought with him a new alternative to the Agreement of the People, a manifesto which called on the soldiers to swear a new oath of loyalty to Fairfax and the General Council of the Army. Many of the soldiers eagerly swore it, and the plan to restore grandee authority over the army seemed to be working. And then, Colonel Thomas Harrison's cavalry regiment arrived. This was a problem for Fairfax for three reasons. Firstly, Harrison's regiment wasn't one of those which had been summoned to Corkbrush Field. Secondly, many of the soldiers had copies of the Agreement of the People stuck in their hatbands, scrawled with words like England's freedom and soldiers' rights. 
Thirdly, Harrison's regiment was missing Harrison. It was missing all of its officers. An entire regiment of the new model army had marched across the kingdom against orders without any officers leading them. Then another regiment arrived, Robert Lilburn's regiment. Yes, John Lilburn's brother was its colonel, and Robert agreed with many of his brother John's published and private thoughts. But like with Harrison's regiment, Lilburn's regiment had no Lilburn. This was one of the regiments which had mutinied during the Putney debates, despite the sympathies of their commanding officer. They had not been summoned to Corkbrush Field, they'd been acting without orders for the past three weeks, and they also came wearing copies of the Agreement of the People. When one of Fairfax's officers approached them and tried to restore discipline, they chased him away with stones and left the man bleeding from a head wound. Control of the army, and effectively the future of England and the other two kingdoms, was on a knife edge. If the levellers successfully rallied the army against the grandees, who knows how the last four centuries might have turned out. But they didn't, because Fairfax and Cromwell acted. Fairfax, possibly with Cromwell in tow, rode to meet Harrison's regiment. Fairfax berated the soldiers, questioning their loyalty, and generally shamed them for their mutinous behaviour. As Fairfax spoke, the officers with him rode through the ranks, grabbing the copies of the agreement from the hats of the soldiers. Rebuked by the universally respected Fairfax, and cowed by the firm actions of the officers, the rest of the men removed their copies of the agreement, and with the soothing diplomacy of Fairfax, the regiment was soon cheering their general's name. The mutiny of Harrison's regiment was broken without a fight. Lilburn's regiment would have heard the cheering of the rest of the muster, when Cromwell arrived at the head of a group of mounted officers. Cromwell led them in a wedge, swords drawn, and brought all his puritanical fury against the men. Shamed and intimidated by Cromwell's intervention, the resolve of the mutineers broke, and they submitted. The officers began grabbing the copies of the agreement from their hats before the rest voluntarily removed them. Fairfax and Cromwell agreed that an example had to be made. Either eight or nine of the mutineers were court-martialed, found guilty of mutiny, and sentenced to death. All but three were immediately pardoned as a show of clemency. The remaining three were told to draw lots. The unfortunate loser, one Private Richard Arnold, became that example. He was summarily shot, gunned down in front of his regiment by two of his fellow mutineers. The grandees had asserted their authority over the army, displayed that they were understanding of the soldiers' grievances, but that discipline would be maintained. Private Arnold had paid for his comrade's lesson. The other two musters took place without incident. The levellers' chance to act had passed, and John Lilburn returned to London. He was disappointed, but he had not given up, and at least now he was out of the tower. But I mentioned two escapees which caused a headache for the grandees. The second fugitive was one Charles Stuart, because on the 11th of November, the king fled from Hampton Court Palace. He insisted that this was purely for his own safety, The rhetoric of the levellers had spooked him, what with their man-of-blood stuff. He claimed that he was only putting himself out of the reach of the radicals who might try to kill him. But no one really believed that was his only reason, or trusted his intentions. 
Fairfax believed he was about to flee north again, to seek the aid of the Scots, and he wrote to John Lambert in York, ordering him to set up guards on all the roads. Instead, the king went south. He boarded a ship and set sail, and on the 14th of November, he arrived in the exotic Isle of Wight. It was garrisoned by Colonel Robert Hammond, who promptly took the king into custody in Carisbrook Castle. Hammond was very much like Fairfax. He disliked politics, he hated the politicisation of the army, and he'd hoped that his commission to the Isle of Wight would keep him out of the big questions of the day. Let someone else deal with the king. So imagine his surprise, and probably mild horror, when that king arrived on his doorstep. He wrote to Fairfax and Cromwell, who, by the way, was Hammond's cousin, Small World, to let them know about his uninvited guest. But Fairfax was not wrong to suspect that Charles was seeking the aid of the Scots. As we will see next episode, Fairfax was entirely right. Remember to give 1666 and all that a listen? You might recognise one of its two hosts, Paul Lay, as an old friend of the show. I spoke to him a few years ago about his book, Providence Lost, on the Protectorate of Oliver Cromwell. Their last episode, as of recording, was on the coronations of the 17th century. If you watched the coronation of Charles III and wondered about the history of many of the ceremonies and regalia, you'll find that episode very interesting. Find 1666 and all that everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to the link in the episode description. Thank you to my House of Lords. Unfortunately, as this sound quality might suggest, I'm away from my usual desk at the moment, so I don't have my usual list. But know that I appreciate all of you. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.